Yeah. Well, good morning, everyone. It was interesting during worship there. Um, how do I say this? Um, we ask the Lord all the time when, you know, when are these things going to happen? When is the first domino going to fall and uh, with, with Carson being healed? And when are all these things going to start to come to fruition? All these promises that the Lord has said. And we, we obviously that's on our hearts all the time, right? And during that last song, he had me just listen. He said, listen to them. Listen to them. He said, if I do it too quickly, Satan will be able to destroy that. So I I want you to think about that and let that settle in your heart a second. Because the real goal are not the dominoes dropping. I mean, we want that. Don't, Don't get me wrong, we want that. But the real goal is God's will. And what God's will is, is to build an army. An army that will push through no matter what. An army that will bring on the readying of the bride. That is a daunting task when you think about it. When you think about it in human terms, even what we've talked about, that, that's, that's daunting to think about. Because, see, it's so easy for Satan to come in, separate and isolate, and then pick apart. That's what he does. He separates first, then he isolates. Then he goes after that person. Have you ever noticed that in your own life? There's not a soul in here that hasn't experienced it. Where you feel like you just... I just need to be by myself. I need to be in my own mind and just make myself feel better. You know, that's how many addictions get started. That's how we self-soothe. Whether it be to turn to alcohol or turn to drugs or turn to food or turn to whatever. It's because we're separated first, isolated from what was I not on? Am I good? <laughs> We're separated first. Then he isolates us. And what, what the isolation is, is making you feel like you're the only one. Like you're the only one that goes through something. You're the only one dealing with something. And there's nobody that's going to understand. Nobody possibly could understand. That's the isolation. Separation is, is from an act. It's an act that makes you just want to get away. Or I, I just can't stand there. I just can't be there. I, I just need to get far from this place because of an interaction, perhaps, or because of something that happened. That's the separation. Then the isolation is him saying nobody understands. Just fall within yourself. Begin to self-soothe. Because you're really the only person that can make you feel better. That's his process. And then we start to kind of buy into that a little bit. 
And then we find ourselves all of a sudden separated from the people we love. And see, so as God is building this army, he is unifying this army, and he has. He has. And and I'm not saying this like what he told me in that last song. I'm not saying that like, okay, this is so way far down the line. The, the reference that he was telling me or the intent that he was telling me was an explanation as to why it has been so long. So don't take that to mean that, oh man, we're just beginning, that's years down the line. That's not, that's not the intent that he was telling me that in that last song. He was trying to explain the why. I guess as humans, that's the first thing we ask, right? When something happens or when something's going on, it's why, Lord? Why? It, I, I'm okay if I understand the why. Lord, you're telling me to walk onto this battlefield where I know I'm going to be hit. I know I'm going to be shot. I know I'm going to take on the battle and, and have injury due to it. I know it. So why? Tell me the why and I'm good with it. Now sometimes he doesn't tell us the why. He says, you don't need to know the why, just obey. Right? But then occasionally he tells us the why. That's what he told me. He said the why is because if he had done this too soon, it would have destroyed the very thing that we experience every time we're together. And he can't have that. He can't have that because he needs it to spread. He needs it to grow. It's interesting because, you know, the Lord gave me two words yesterday. You see them. Consumer, producer. Gave me two words, but didn't give me anything with it. And I found myself this morning getting really excited because he wasn't giving me a whole lot. And it's, it's, I gotta tell you, it's just the weirdest place to be, to be sitting there during worship and, and, and having just little tidbits and, and being excited. Because it's like, it, it's literally like I could go and I could sit down and I can just listen to what the Lord has. And that's where I'm at this morning. This idea of consumer and producer, I think, is such a basic idea. It's, it's really about paradigms. It's really about the foundation of who we are as Christians. Are we a consuming Christian? Or are we a producing Christian? Now, see, on the surface, that, that sounds, well, that's pretty basic, you know. 20% of the church does 100% of the work in the church. So you got 20% of the Christians are producers, 80% are consumers. You know, that's pretty, pretty normal, pretty average in terms of, of, of that. Anybody resonate with that? I mean, if you've been in Christian leadership at all, you understand that. I mean, we've been in churches, we, we've been in, my wife and I have been in church leadership for 30 years, almost 30 years, something like that. So we've seen a thing or two. But yet those things always tend to work out to those averages. But see, what that really builds in you is a paradigm of what is a consumer and what is a producer. And what he has shown me in my 
just in my time with him this morning during worship and, and just in my thought process is that, no, it's not even that. It's not what we physically do in church. It's not what we physically do in our lives that makes us a consumer or a producer as a Christian. It is literally the most basic thing in our lives of a paradigm. In our minds, do we consume God for us or do we consume God for Him? When you think about it that way, it takes probably 19% of that 20% and puts them on the other side. And, and you know, it, it brings to mind, the Lord's been showing me this. I've been, I've been just all throughout the Old Testament, and, and it's interesting because I never, certainly never taught much about the Old Testament before, and, and would spend most of my time in the New Testament, up until probably about 10 years ago. But even more specifically, the last two or three years, he has just been just immersing me in the Old Testament and peeling things back. And, and, and I'm looking at these things and wow, okay, I look at this so differently now. And this morning's no different. I, I'm going to show you a few examples. This idea of consumer versus producer. You know, for the first one, let's talk about one you all know. And that's King Saul, first king of Israel, right? We all know King Saul, and he, he, he started out right. He started out wanting God's will. Okay, but then the consumption of his position and all that came with it, especially being, I mean, imagine not only being king, but how about being the first king? You know, think that might go to your head a little bit? Bible also said that he was a head taller than everybody else, so he had a bigger head for it to go to. <laughs> right? I mean, you can imagine what was going on in his mind and how susceptible he was to Satan going in and saying, you know what, you're great. You know, you're really something. You can do this, you can do that, you can take this in your own way. And, and we know so many stories about how King Saul did that very thing. But I want you to understand something. See, I, I used to always think that Saul's not a good example of a Christian because he really wasn't a believer. I mean, he was a believer in himself. He, he, was, a, he was a believer in, in furthering his family. He was a believer in furthering his comfort. But he, but he really wasn't one that believed God. He really wasn't one that gave God, you know, his due, if you will. And the Lord showed me how wrong I was. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Now this, this is getting toward the end of Saul's life. Samuel had already died. Okay, Samuel was the current, he was the prophet of the day. He had already died. And Saul was, was dealing with, with issues and, and he goes to this, uh, this medium, this witch of Endor, to call up Saul, of all things. I don't know about you. 
Huh? Didn't I say Samuel? No, that Saul went to... Oh, to call up Samuel, sorry. Yes. Turn to Samuel. I did say that, right? Don't turn to First Saul. First Samuel, chapter 28. Yes, where, where Saul went to the witch of Endor to call up the spirit of Samuel. Okay, to ask, what do I do? What do I do? Okay, now first of all, this was not a good thing for him to do. Okay, you don't go to witchcraft to get a hold of God. That's probably a mistake. Okay, in fact, we're going to see in the reaction that that was a huge mistake. But I want to point out something that's going to to lay this case down. Okay, now, first of all, uh, let's see, let me see where I want to start. Um, Let, let me start at verse 15. This is Saul, Samuel's response, basically, to Saul. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Which, by the way, we won't, we won't do a, uh, a rabbit trail on that, but if you ever want a very interesting study, study that. How was that possible? Did that really happen? Wait a second. Samuel's dead. And he's being summoned up by a witch? Okay, we won't go down that rabbit hole right now. But, but I, I guarantee you it's a very interesting study and you will be shocked. You will be amazed. You will be surprised at to, as to the truth of what's going on. I, I will say this. This is actually happening. Okay, this is not metaphoric. Saul, or Samuel comes back and he says to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress. I think the fact that he came back would have distressed me. I don't know. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what should I do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? That's a heavy statement. Okay, that's why I never thought Saul was a real believer. Because literally, the Lord had become his enemy. Think about the gravity of that statement. Okay, that's not Saul saying, yeah, the Lord's my enemy, he doesn't like me anymore, woe is me. That is Samuel, who is coming from the Lord, saying, yeah, the Lord is your enemy. That's a heavy, heavy statement. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. And this is Samuel speaking. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. The next part is what blew me away. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Okay, he didn't say, and tomorrow you and your sons are going to go to hell. We know Samuel wasn't in hell. He said, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And it got me thinking, 
The difference in the New Testament between salvation and sanctification is a decision centers around our salvation, our justification. It's a simple decision of believing who Jesus Christ is, right? That he came in the flesh as a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the grave, sits at the right hand of the Father. The the Bible says when you believe that and you receive him into your heart, you're justified. It's like he takes the blood of Jesus Christ and pours it over you as a veil that the Father sees through. You are no longer worthy of death because you're covered by the blood. We have songs about that, right? That's justification. But in the Old Testament, it was no different except for one thing. In the Old Testament, it was still coming. In the New Testament, it had come. But justification is no different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. In in terms of Saul, it was believing that there was a Messiah that was going to come. Believing the very prophecies that said that there would be a Messiah born in the flesh that would die, that would come and save this nation, save the world. Believing that was a justification for sin. Living by the law was a course for sanctification. That's why that was ongoing. That's why the sacrifices had to be continued. Because they were building a relationship with the Lord through that obedience. Now, that's also different because, see, they were living by the law, right? They were building their relationship by the law. When Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, he offered the idea of grace in what? In relationship. Not grace in terms of you could sin now. Because see, it was no different back then than it is now. Saul did not lose his salvation, if you want to call it that. He did not lose his justification because he went to a witch. He did not lose his justification because he began to sin. Because he began to take his eyes away from the Lord. And literally want to use the Lord for his own good. Because that's really the only reason Saul was going after the word for the Lord anyways. is because the Philistines were after him. Because of all those things, he did not lose his justification. Proof of that is Samuel saying, by the way, tomorrow you're going to die, you and your sons, and you'll be with me. That wasn't good news to Saul, I don't think. But it should have been. How about the good news that he didn't lose his justification? See, so you look at his life, and was he a consumer, or was he a producer? I think that's pretty obvious, right? He was a consumer. As we go throughout the Word of God, and I, we, could, we could go through story after story after story, the more I am open to, to what the Lord shows me in this, the more I realize 
There are so many people in the Word of God that we assume are close walking with the Lord, this tight relationship with the Lord that really are not. I want to give you another good example. Turn to Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. Now we, we, I mean, Jonah is like one of these Old Testament stories we, we teach kids. And it was so awesome. And he was in this whale or this big fish and he's sitting in there for three days and he gets spit up and, and then all's good, man. He goes and, and gets Nineveh and it, it, it's awesome. No. No. Honestly, the only thing that the fish did was pushed Jonah to say, look, dude, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to kill you if you do not do my will here. Why? Because you are the prophet that I have called to this place right now. And if you don't do it, sure, I'll find somebody to do it, but I will remove your life. So let's look how, how, and we know the story with Jonah. We know Jonah went, first of all, he didn't even want to go there, right? God says, go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction. And then he's thrown into the sea, the fish swallows him up. That couldn't have been a good experience. Pretty mad. I don't even like to eat fish that's fishy. Can you imagine living in one for three days? I imagine he probably smelled pretty bad when he was put out on that on that beach. But then he at least is obedient. Although, I think obedient with an attitude. You know, he goes to Nineveh and, and he's like, tells them what they're supposed to say and, or what he's supposed to say. And, and basically, I want to, I want to look at chapter four. Let's just begin reading at verse one. This is, this is, uh, <laughs> this is Jonah's reaction to this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, and, and by the way, this is after they repented, right? He, he said, in 40 days, you're going to all die. God's, God's going to just destroy you. I'm sure he enjoyed saying that part. Just thinking, please don't repent. Please don't repent. Knowing all along they were going to. Because God is righteous, and God is gracious, and God is loving. Not just for his people. Understand, the Ninevites were not his people. We're not God's people. God's chosen. Jonah was. And yet he had the attitude. Right? So he said, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, I told you, God. (laughs) Didn't I tell you this is what was going to happen? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Okay, in today's vernacular, it'd be God looking at him and going, Seriously? Seriously, you're going to be angry? Angry that I just saved these people. They repented. They follow me. They love me. They see me for the first time in their life. Seriously? You're going to be angry? Really? Jonah went out of the city and sat. And this is a guy with a real problem. 
Okay, what's happening here? Separation, isolation. He's separated from the very revival that just broke out. I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of even a service where revival broke out. But do you understand, it's the hardest thing in the world to walk away from. I mean, you want to be there. You want to, you want to be a part of it. You don't want to leave. You don't want it to end. You just want to be a part of it. And this is breaking out over the whole city. 120,000 people. This is not a small church. This is 120,000 people. Where, where he has the literal voice, or he has the literal ear of the king. And so what's he do? Out of anger, Satan separates him. He didn't stay in victory and joy and worship with them and revel with them. He allowed himself to be separated out. And then Satan went to work on the isolation. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. I, I picture like in California, we used to see these cardboard boxes that the, the homeless would sleep in. That's what I picture. Like he built a little homeless shelter, this little box, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. <laughs> I mean, a tantrum. That's what he's having here. Like, seriously, Lord, pick me or them. Can you imagine what's going on in his mind? Now the Lord God appoint, appointed a plant <laughs> and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <laughs> okay, I want you to recognize what's going on here. First of all, this is extraordinary that this plant rose up just boom, right away. I've never been able to get, I mean, most plants die when I have them, but I've certainly never been able to have a plant that would grow quickly like that. And, and this one grew up quickly and gave him shade and it was hot and, and he, he was really happy. It's like, okay, my externals are taken care of. I'm happy now. Thank you, God. But, should say, but God, right? But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. I don't know, that, that was either a lot of worms or one big worm. I don't know. But it took care of that plant quickly, right? So as quick as it went up, it went down. When the sun, uh, Jonah, so that he would, wait. And this, yeah, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. Now, Understand what's going on here. God's doing all this. God appointed. God appointed. God set in motion. God said to do this. God is looking at this child of his having a tantrum. And this is God's way of saying, go get the stick. We're going to go out back. I'm sorry. I, this is this is old school here. Okay. In my growing up, it was a rod. Because the Lord said, spare the rod and spoil the child. And my dad believed in the little, literal interpretation of the rod. But I'll tell you what, it worked. It worked. And I'll leave that one alone for right now. But that's what God is doing here. Okay, God didn't just come and 
sit next to him, manifest and sit next to him and say, you know what, it's going to be okay. You know, they're people too. You need to just love them. They're people too. You know what, how about we just take you back. We'll get you away from here. You don't have to deal with them anymore. I'm still going to love them, but you won't know about it. (laughs) I mean, think about that. No, God said, oh no, you didn't. God said, no. This isn't right. Why? Because I love you, Jonah, and you can't be like this because you're consuming me. You're not producing from me. You're consuming me. You're obedient. Sure. You're doing what's right. Sure. Even though I have to drag you along, you're doing what's right, but your heart's not there. You're consuming me while you're doing it. You're not letting me flow through you and produce what I want you to produce. See, it's a paradigm shift. Because understand that the production is still happening. But it was his mindset that made him a consumer instead of a producer. When the sun rose, uh, we we just read that, Jonah So that uh, the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Sounds like a broken record. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, if I were Jonah, I would have thought, wait a second. I answered this way last time and God sent this plant then took it away. So maybe I should understand that God's trying to teach me something. But he doesn't. He's thick-headed. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. (laughs) Wow. I don't even know how to respond to that. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I don't know why he added that last part in, except that he owns all the cattle. So added to the thousand hills there, right? See, he said... I love these people. Do you not understand that? Do you not see that? Do you not see that I actually sent you there to do a beautiful thing? And you wasted it. It still got done. But for Jonah, I mean, that's where the book ends. I I can't wait to get to heaven to, to ask Jonah what happened next. Because... Honestly, it's 50-50. Either Jonah got it, or I think God took his life. But through that whole process, his obedience was obedience out of probably sheer terror. Which, if he asked to die anyways, why didn't he just do that with the fish? See, he was a consumer. 
Life to him, his relationship to God, to him, was what can it do for me? There are so many in the Word of God like that. Balaam is, is another one, and that's, I won't go into the story, but that, that whole story about how Balaam operated as a prophet, it was for his own prophet. <laughs> it was. He was still obedient, though. When the Lord told him to do something, he would do it. He'd fight with the Lord, but then he would do it. And, and we see that all throughout the Word of God, Right? Sadly, we see that in our own lives. It's not good enough to just be obedient. It's not good enough to just say, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll just do it. It's not enough to say that. Because all you are is a consumer. You are consuming who he is, what he can do for you without becoming a producer of his love. And that's what he wants. That's what he needs. Why do you think it has taken so long for the bride to become ready or even begin that process? Take out of the fact that God's timing, and I get that, but why do you think it was so long? You, you look at churches, many of you grew up in churches. I grew up in churches that, that did a lot of things. A lot of things for Christ. And in fact, I, I was just, uh, just with some family and they were telling me how this church that they're part of, huge church, huge church. And I'm not saying anything yay or nay about this church, but but they were touting on and on about how they give so much to missions, so much money to missions. Their missions budget is huge. You know what that does to me? Falls on deaf ears. Because what they did was they took the very part that's God's and they took control of it. What I would have rather heard, and I'm sure this is the case, is of the people that the church sent. To become producers of God's love. And do that through relationship with Him. See, you can, you can produce while being a consumer, and, we, and we've given that example. It's a paradigm change in your mind. It's understanding that I am producing for the will of God and for the furtherance of the gospel and for the joy that he gives me in relationship instead of out of fear of my standing. See, a lot of people, a lot of churches, they produce out of fear. Well, don't do this. Do this. You know, go down this list. Live this way or else. And so they do that, which is, I mean, it's, it's good that they're obedient in that. But it's just like Jonah. It doesn't make any difference in his life unless they look at that and they obey out of love. They obey out of relationship. See, it's different. And I can say this because I went through it myself. And I know many in here have. I grew up in legalism. I grew up in that obedience for obedience sake. And you just do this because this is what the Bible says. And you live by these principles in the word of God. That's not a bad thing. But all I was was a consumer. All I was was consuming what he had for me. And what that was is I did not have to have the fear 
of life because I could count on his principles. I knew if I tithe, he'll always outgive me. Okay, it's different when you tithe out of love. See, so when God took me through this paradigm change of relationship with him, it was really a paradigm change of why I am doing things. I've said this before. I mean, I'd be, I'd be the greatest legalist in the world if I was in a legalistic church today, except for the hair, maybe. Why? Because I don't do all these things that they say are wrong. But it doesn't come out of obedience through fear. It came out of obedience simply because he told me to and I love him. Do you see, when you build relationship with him, where you have communication back and forth, then your reasons for doing things change. God loves obedience. Obedience is is something that he requires. But you could see with Jonah the difference in how one obeys. You know, take Jonah's life and Paul's life and compare the two. Right? Paul, Paul had to face all these things. He, he dealt with all these problems. But yet his heart was in love through relationship with Jesus Christ. And so God produced through him, but that production was extraordinary because it was God. Paul's life was extraordinary. He, he knew that upon his death, he would be ushered into the kingdom of heaven in extraordinary ways because he was a producer. And it's not that he produced it himself. We can't, that, that's, that's a misconception. I can't get involved in church and, okay, I'm, I'm going to start teaching the kids or I'm going to start doing this or I'll get involved with this, this and that, and, and that's how I'm going to produce. No. As you build relationship with the Lord, you say, what, what do you want? What do you want? I'll, I'll step wherever you want me to step. But you know what? Wherever I step, I'm going to show your love. I will give you the most clean conduit I could possibly give you to work through. Then the rest is up to you. So many churches miss that. They miss it, especially with money. You know, churches will, will go after God and, and pray and, you know, prayer worries and all this stuff. And then the one thing they take back control of is the one thing that God wanted to do for them in the first place. And that is the financial. Well, we'll control this and, and God, you work through all this. See, don't we do that in our own lives? As we build relationships with him, we set aside the things that, you know, those are things we just kind of want to hold on to. We kind of want to control. Money tends to be a big one. I don't know. For most people. Because money kind of pays for everything, right? But not just money. Relationships. That's that's another big one. Things that we want to control because we don't think God will do it the way we want him to do it. Just like Jonah. I knew, God, that you were going to be nice to them. I knew it. Shouldn't have done this. I knew it. Don't we operate the same way? Lord, I'm going to hold this portion back of my life because I know you won't let me have it my way. 
Now, we may consciously or unconsciously know that, but it's still the same thing. It's still what we want to do in control. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. What does it look like to be a producer, to be a true producer of Jesus Christ's love? Let's start at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Walk with hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, this is not talking to non-Christians. This is not talking to, to um, people that don't have a clue who the Holy Spirit is. You first have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is working in today's church, which so many churches don't believe. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and he desire and, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That pretty much covers everything, by the way. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to recognize something. He just said, you are not under the law And boom, he goes and he quotes the law. So our salvation, our choices are not bound by the law. But recognize the law is a perfectly righteous law. The law is not a bad thing. It's just we could never keep up with it. In our own strength, the law would crush us. But when we build relationship with Jesus Christ, He begins to manifest in our lives and our desires, and we begin to produce Him through us, produces His fruit, fruit of the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, these things that are in the law that condemn us, fade away. Because our desires change. Our desires become to please the Lord through that relationship. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, and this is what he's saying, if you are a producer, you're going to see these things in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, what he's saying is, is when you build relationship with Jesus, is you are not held down by the law because these fruits that are produced in your life can never be produced by the law. Can't be produced by only obedience. If you think the key is simple obedience to Jesus Christ and obeying His laws, then you're confused. Because that will never produce the fruits of the Spirit. 
I would encourage anyone to look at their own life. I would encourage those embedded in legalism to look at their own life and to see, do I have love? Now, what does that mean? Do I have love? I used to think, well, yeah, I love my wife. I love God. I love people that I want to that I want to love. So do I have love? I suppose I do in a measure. It's not what it's talking about. Because over-encompassing love is love, period. Do you love? See, Jonah had love. Jonah loved his people. <laughs> Jonah loved the people, his family. He loved the people that, that he hung around with and, and all that. But he also had hate. He had hate for Nineveh. He didn't love them. Did the fruits of the Spirit show up in Jonah's life? Well, we could take the first one with love, and we could check that off and say no. Look at your own life. Does it show love outside of your comfort zone? Outside of the people that you know you're supposed to love, or you do love because you were with them growing up, or whatever. The next one, joy. Do we have joy in our lives? What is joy? Joy is not happiness. Because you can have happiness, you can have a happy moment and not be joyful. And yet you can be joyful in some of the most horrible conditions. Joy is a place of rest with God. Joy is this this unwavering smile that you have when you think of your relationship with God, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through. Did Jonah have joy? Jack, probably not. Certainly doesn't manifest that way. Peace. Do you have peace in your life? This is a tough one. Because... Most of us think of peace as things not going bad or not going, you know, going the way they should, right? Do you have peace in your life? Well, if there's turmoil in your life, then you think, well, no, we don't have peace. You know, if, if that's the true meaning of peace, then the Sellers family cannot have any peace. You guys are not allowed to have peace because you live in turmoil, Right? Is that the case? Of course not. Because that's not what peace is. Peace is the assurance that God's in control. Peace is the assurance that God is doing what God wants to do. And if you give Him your yes, He's going to do what He wants to do in your life, and that is good. Everything He does for us is good. I can walk into a battle zone being at peace Because I know that God will work through me as a producer and do what He wants to do. That's peace. I could walk in peace that a year ago when I went to Nigeria knowing they were going to try and abduct me. I could walk in peace. It isn't that Satan doesn't try to mess up your peace. Because he did all kinds of things to try to get me to have fear on that trip, and not even go on that trip. And and by the way, here's the tough part. 
God let him. God let him give me visions of what they wanted to do to me when they abducted me. I had to come to a place because of love, because of peace, because of trusting what God wants to do in my life to say, okay. I mean, if, if that vision is real, okay. If you take my very life, okay. You know, it's, it's like Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do we really believe that? You either believe that or you don't. You, you can tout it and say, I believe it. But when you're faced with it, do you believe it? That's peace. That's that peace that doesn't make sense. That peace that surpasses, surpasses all understanding. Patience. Let's skip that one. <laughs> that one's, I don't know about you. That, that's, that's probably, even for those who have relationship with the Lord and walk with the Lord, that's probably one of the toughest ones. Patience. Yeah, I, that's, yeah. Patience is tough. Now, I know, I don't want to talk about it, but he wants me to. We, we don't have time to talk about patience. That's good, Beth. Thank you. That was Beth, Lord, not me. <laughs> patience is... You know, you know what? I think he listed patience third because if he listed it first, we probably wouldn't have kept reading. He says, you know, love and, and all these, this joy, this peace and patience. Oh, you had me hooked and now I'm there. Okay, so I got to learn about this patience. Patience is hard, guys. Why? Because it takes time. You can't learn patience without the infusion of time. And that is usually time of angst, time of, of going through what you're going through. You know, if, if, if I remember my, my, uh, when I played college football, the, uh, coming out of high school, of course you, you do high school two days and, and they're hard. It's like seriously, you know. And then you go to college and we did two weeks of three days in Lynchburg, Virginia, where I'm pretty sure Temperatures hit 800. Pretty positive. And you're, it, back then, they don't have it anymore, but back then there was an island. They called it, I think it was called Treasure Island or something. There, there were no treasures buried on that island. I'm telling you, I'm pretty sure there were bodies buried on that island. And I remember we would go there for these, these three-a-days. We'd get up, and, and the first one would go from 6 to 9 in the morning. And, and see, like me... I, I was skinny in high school, 6'5", and I think I was 200, right at 200 pounds. I can't remember when, it, when I first got there. And, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm tall. I, I, I was big for high school, and I get there, and they're looking at me, and they go, boy, don't you eat, boy. We need to get some weight on you. And so we're doing three days. Before each one, they force you to eat. And by the way, they give you how much you had to eat. To give you an example, I gained 30 pounds and it wasn't fat. It wasn't fat because all in all this, you're still working out and stuff too. So, so from six to nine, we had, had the, the morning. Then, then we'd get rest and, and we wouldn't even, I mean, you don't even take your gear off. You just go try and find a tree. You know, I, 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 I understand how Jonah felt 
at least a little bit. Because if God would have taken those trees away, <laughs> I don't know, it might have had a different feeling about the thing. But then, then you go in, then, then it's like you, you take a quick nap, you hear the big horn, and then you get up and you've got to go do it again. You do this three times a day, right? It was, <laughs> it was a patient building scenario. Okay, because you're going through this thinking every moment, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why did I say yes? See, they didn't force me to do it. I said yes. I literally brought on this idea of beating me down. The military is another good example. You join the military. What do, they, what do you do right off the bat? You go for them to beat you down. Right? Those of you who've been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, well, you said yes. Let me remind you, you said yes. <laughs> Why? It's to build that patience, to build that endurance, to understand, hey, guess what? You can go through this. You can make it. God's trying to teach that in our spiritual lives. If you're dealing with something, if you're dealing with warfare, you're dealing with a situation in your family... And it's just not getting better. He's trying to say, look, I'm building this patience in you. Because I'm the same God before this started as I am today when you're in the middle of it. As I will be in the future when you're finally done with it. But in the meantime, I need you to trust. I need you to have patience in the fact that I'm in control. Isn't this where we're at as a church? We're living in patience that those dominoes are going to fall. That Carson's going to be healed. That these things are going to happen. You know, people where the Lord has told them to quit their jobs, that he's building patience in them to say, I'm going to provide. I'm going to give you what you need. Have patience. Because in the future, you're going to be facing something where you're going to need that patience. You're going to be dealing with somebody that needs to see God so you, so God can produce through you understanding of what that patience is. The only way he can is if you have it and you go through it and you learn it. So as hard as it is, now I'm not going to say pray for patience, but guess what? He's going to, he's going to take you through it whether you pray for it or not. You can pray, Lord, hurry. I think that's fine. I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a good prayer because of what he showed me in that last song. See, God, I don't want the Lord to hurry anything. I want him to do his will. Because don't you think he wants to hurry? Don't you think he wants his bride to be ready? Don't you think he wants his Holy Spirit to fall on this church like he has promised? Don't you think he wants... I'll guarantee he wants that more than any of us. So he's the one that is probably hurrying himself. And he, he's just... If you guys would just be patient. <laughs> I'm doing what I need to do. So when this happens, you're going to be equipped. And you're going to be ready to deal with it. Kindness. Kindness, goodness, and we'll, we'll just hit, hit these two. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. All those things 
are aspects of who we are as a person. It's how we look at other people. Do we love other people? Do we really love other people? If we do, we're going to be kind. We're going to be gentle. We're going to be meek. We're going to be loving. Right? So look at your own lives. Is your life displaying these things? And not just for the people that are around you. Not just for the people that are... The people that are in your comfort zone are not a test. Period. The real test is, are you out of your comfort zone? Because God cannot understand this. I've been preaching this long before we ever became ignition. Right? You could ask any of the young people in here that have been with us that long. God cannot do his work in you in your comfort zone. First thing he's going to do when you say yes is he'll take you out of it. That's the first thing he'll do. Because when you're out of your comfort zone, that's when these things really can be tested. Really, if you have patience, really, if you have loving kindness, if you have peace, if you have joy, it's when you're out of your comfort zone and you cannot control things yourself, that's where the real test is. So I I encourage those even watching online, judge it from that aspect. Are you ever out of your comfort zone? That might tell you something. Might tell you something about your love. It's easy to love things around you. Right? I had a pet lizard. It's easy to love him. Right? It's easy to love what you control in your own life. It's hard when you give control to God, step out of your comfort zone, and he said, oh, no, no, still love. Still give. I want to produce through you. And then the last one is about as tough as patience. Self-control. We have a good old American word that describes it a little bit better, and it's called discipline. Right. Do we have discipline in our lives? Do we have discipline to spend time with the Lord? Do we have discipline to do what he lays before our feet? Discipline's tough because we could be disciplined in one area and not in another. And, and by the way, guys, I, I'm preaching to myself. I mean, this affects everybody. Discipline affects everybody. Are we disciplined to give God everything and let him give back what he wants? Ouch. Yeah, by the way, do you know in the Old Testament, it, it, he said give 10% of... of of your all your income, right? And you all know that. Do you know he changed that in the New Testament? In the New Testament, he said, give me everything. <laughs> and not just your money. Give me everything. I want you. He said, give me your life. Give me your choices. Give me your love. Give me your joy. Give me... Give me your eyes so I can put my eyes into you. Let me let, me let you see people how I see people. That takes a discipline to not pull back control. It's a discipline, and and this is going to sound really strange. I'll tell you what. As the Lord draws the line in the sand for the churches, which he is is already doing, this is going to be one of the toughest things because it doesn't make sense to us humanly. One of the greatest disciplines is to let God 
deal with finances. One of the first things he told me when we started church is you will not take an offering, period. You could put a box in the corner of the room and let them give, but you will not take an offering because you will not take from me what is my responsibility. But yet churches do that all the time. That was one of the biggest troubles that we had, that, that I had in the last church we were at. On the leadership team, we wanted to take steps of faith that made no sense. But it all came down to how can we manage this money-wise? And I remember the pastor saying to me, we can't possibly do that because there, there's this many people in the church and according to this formula... This is the most you're going to get out of them. And I just sat back and was astounded. I said, I guess, I guess we're on different pages because I never thought we'd be getting the money from them. I thought God had the money. It didn't say that, well, the, the people in your church own the cattle on a thousand hills. I said, God did. Now, five years later, or four years later, we have proof that God does exactly what he says he does because he has met every need that we have. And, and by the way, we're, we're a church here, probably, I'm going to say, 80 to 85% in their 20s or younger. So that, that just doesn't even make sense. But let's heap on top of that the fact that we're now getting... Land given to us in Nigeria. By the way, not land that's just a few bucks. This is land that's valued. I mean, what they were going to charge us for it was 350000 U.S., and that was a good deal. It was probably closer to a half a million dollars U.S. money that is being given to us. I know the building program, the plans that we have, the building there is close to a million dollars U.S. Now, by the way, we're going to take not... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> See, we, I, I, I think God did that on purpose because we couldn't even begin to try. We couldn't even begin to try. And yet, God has already set up donors for that. We're hoping it begins construction in February. We, Michael and I go in a few weeks to close on the land. I mean... That's because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and we just said, we won't take that from you. We'll let you deal with that part of it. That's what he wants his churches to say. And you know what? There's going to be some big churches that, that decide to do that. And it's going to be hard for them. But they're going to make the choice and say, we're not going to do look at next year and what we want to do next year based on a budget. I think budgets drive the Lord insane. And I'm not saying don't be wise with your money. Be good stewards. If you build a relationship with the Lord where He speaks clearly to you, who needs a budget when you say, okay, well, Lord, do you want me to do this or not? Take my feelings out of it. Do you want me to do this? Yes, no. Okay, that's the end of it. Do you know that's where I was when 
the Lord told us to just get rid of the business. I knew at that point it was on him. If, if we had financial failure, it wasn't on me. It was on him. And if we needed to go through that, then that was okay too. Whatever he wanted to do. Some churches are going to make that decision. And they're going to see God provide in amazing ways. Sometimes we take the miracle process from him. Do you do that in your own life? Do you negate the miracle process in your own life because you want to control that aspect of your life? If you are, even if you're doing all kinds of things for Christ, you're a consumer. You're not a producer. Because a producer is one that is that perfect conduit, that clean conduit for the Lord to do what he wants through them no matter what. And there's so many things we got to get out of the way. But if you focus on one thing, all the rest fades, and that's control. If you work on getting your control out of the way, giving God control in your life, everything else will become easy. All these things will become a factor that when somebody else looks in your life, looks at your life, they'll be able to say this. That's the real test, by the way. If people look at your life, will they say they have joy, they have love, they have patience, they have peace, they have kindness, they have goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, discipline? That's up to you. It's up to you to say yes. Up to you to relinquish control to God and let him bring those things into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you, God. I thank you, Lord, that all you want to do is do everything through us. Not that we have to do anything outside of relinquishing control. That's really the only way I can wrap my mind around what you have said you want to do with this church and with us on a global scale, and yet we are where we are. That's the only way I can wrap my mind around it because all we, our only responsibility is to not take control and to just say yes. See, so many people individually in so many small churches like us, Father, look at it like we don't have a whole lot to offer. And that's absolute lie. That's what Satan wants to be declared, and it's a lie. Because we have the most powerful thing to offer you, Father. And that is our yes. To offer you our mouth without our control. To offer you our hands without our control. To offer you our feet without our control. So that you could come into our lives and direct us how you want to direct. Because you'll never force that on people. You'll never force that on your bride. So what we have to offer you is pretty huge. And we thank you, Lord, that you have 
set it up that way, that it, that it requires our partnership with you for you to do what you want to do with your bride here on earth. I thank you for that. And not to our own credit, God, but to the fact that we get the most amazing thing out of that process, and that is relationship. Through that process, I was allowed to not just call you my best friend, but see you as my best friend. So I thank you. I pray, Lord, that you show us the areas of our lives where we're holding on to some point of control. And your will be done, Father. Your will be done. As you've planned it in heaven, have it be done on this earth, have it be done in ignition, have it be done in this country, your will be done, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God is so cool. You know, Greg doesn't always tell me. um, In fact, really rarely does he tell me what, uh, if God's given him like a single word or two words. And he actually happened to mention to me what the two words were. And what was weird is God had given it to me in the same way. But I I said to him this morning, I said, that's so odd. God gave me two words to to speak for the class. And I said, and I wonder, they don't seem like they're going to tie in. Um, because the words that he had given me were let go. And so as Greg's preaching, I, I had asked the Lord, you know, how's this going to tie in? Because God always does it. He loves to give us um, a word that's just kind of congruent. You know, we can Amen. get the same thing. And he tied it together in a way that I thought was so cool because, um, and if you could put that slide back up there, the consumer producer, because I just thought it was just so neat to to not be the consumer in the context that, he talked about in the message is about letting go of many, many things that we need to let go of because he does want a a false paradigm. I mean, uh, our wrong paradigms uh, changed and all false paradigms gone and new paradigms replaced. And the other thing that I thought was cool is um, when we look at the word consumer, depending on how you look at it, we're not to consume from God, but yes, we are to consume God. Yes. When we completely, it, some people call it a soaking. You heard that phrase, you know, soaking. When we soak him in, we actually are consuming him like a sponge in that way so that what spills over is what's produced because what's produced is, of course, on him. The fruit and the result of our, um, of our you know, filling up with him, that's more of a filling. But the, the term where it's bad is, you know, in the old days when they would say that somebody had a drinking problem, they would call it consumption. It was a, it was a, it was consumption. That's where it's bad. And right away, um, even before we had gotten to Jonah, he brought to my mind um, James 4.4, which is one of the, the verses, at least in the King James, where that word is used. Ye ask and ye receive not, because you ask amiss, that you might consume it upon your lusts. And I think so much, it, it reminds me of, uh, and I've said it now a couple of times, but one of the um, statements made in one of um, Smith Wigglesworth's books where he said that we need to stop begging and start believing. 
beg less, believe more. And I thought that's so true. You know, we, we're, we're desperate from God and we are hungry. We, we are hungry, but God wants us to come from a, a hunger for him, not from what we can get from him. And, um, and I love that. And I, I just, uh, I think what such a good reminder, you know, to move into 2019, this endurance, you know, that he mentioned patience and endurance. I do think that that's been the hardest journey for Ignition Church is building in us the endurance. But even in the blessings, there's still going to be endurance. Even in some of the, the, the tsunami, the wave, the tidal wave of his spirit, there's still going to have to be the strength of that hosting of his presence. There's still going to have to be the, the, the ability to, um, to really have the weightiness of his power and glory and the blessings he's about to release. He still needs us strong to be able to endure what that's going to mean because what we fill up on him with, we become responsible to pour out. And that's really what I just thought was so powerful at the very beginning of what Greg said today is he wants what we're learning here in Ignition to be something that's carried out and spread to other people. And if you can barely get it for your own life, then you're not going to be equipped and strong enough to then share it and reproduce yourself. And that's how the remnant has the effect on the rest of the bride, is to be able to carry what we're learning and give it to others. So I do, um, I've said this so many times, we have the podcasts, we have the um, the online, you can, even this afternoon, we have it, you know, live on Facebook, right, while he's preaching. But you can watch it online, um, on Facebook right away, even after the service. But I hope that you'll go back through, listen to it again, and inventory your life in even the smallest ways. Because all those fruits that we know are the fruits of the Spirit, and some of us have it memorized and we know it in principle, but the fruit of our life is supposed to look different in the smallest ways. And I mentioned this downstairs with the women, but um, but I'm just going to mention again what Lacey had said at one of the gifts meetings, just by way of a testimony, that even some of her personal habits, personal things that were responses to the way that she you know, reacted, lived, whatever, are different now. They're, they're things she just doesn't do anymore. And... That is a, a practical example of what the fruits of the Spirit look like in our lives. You know, if, if we're looking for some overarching, big, okay, well, I'm supposed to be transformed here. The big picture of the transformation only looks like that because all the little things are changed. So what, what we allow God to produce in us is actually changed because, or comes because we're fundamentally different. He is trying to develop in all of us a new normal. Many of us, who, who knew we'd be at regularly on a prayer call every single night, right. seven nights a week? You know, that is a practical fruit. That is a practical real life action habit that is the fruit of the transformed life. So when you, when you inventory your life, where is that control? that he just spoke about. If your life doesn't look different in some of the little ways, then you probably are um, having a lot of control and, and maybe asking amiss. You know, we, we keep asking, 
But God is saying, you know, look, you're, you're not able to receive because it's, you're, you're coming to me begging me, which is different than crying out. It's a begging to consume from him, heaping it upon our lust, which the lusts are the things that are the verses right before the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Mm-hmm. That selfish ambition, that, God, you know i got to have this. You know I need this job. You know my boss doesn't cooperate with me and doesn't let me off, and that's why I can't be with the body of Christ and this and that. And You know I can't do with my finances. It's, it's like, God, fix these things. And he's saying, yeah, but if they're not in my hands, that's where the amiss that's a King James word. You're, the amiss comes in because mm-hmm. he's like, put it in my hands and then watch what I'll do with it. Amen. And that's hard. That's hard. He's been dealing with me in that. He's been dealing with me and letting go, um, not stop praying about it, but letting go in that, you know, like what I do, what, what I often now do is like, Lord, what you put in my mind and you put in my heart, let me, let me pray. And guess what? What he brings to you often is what he's highlighting for you to just stand in agreement with because it is his will. So it doesn't mean that you don't have a burden for your family and you pray for them or a burden for your finances or your job. But when we pray in agreement with his will, we are then really delighting in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and then he's giving us the desire of our heart because what we're giving him is our desires. We're not deciding what we want, and then going to the Lord and begging him for it so we can consume it. We're kind of like, Lord, tell me what to pray for. You know, um, did, I don't, did we sing it this morning? We, if we didn't, we did it recently. But let your heartbeat be my heartbeat. Did we just sing it? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Because I, I just was completely engrossed in something when, when I was saying those words. But I thought, you know, is that true? If my heartbeat is his heartbeat, I don't have to worry about what I pray. I'm just like, Lord, let me just pray Pray your spirit. Pray in agreement with your will. Because does he not know what we have need of? Our our ignition verse, the mantra of this ministry, is to seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. And the, the, the best intended heart can flip that verse upside down. But God, you know what I have need of. So if you just please give me this, and you know, so I can seek your kingdom better. We get it backwards. And he's just saying, look, seek my kingdom. Seek my truth. Seek that. Because then I can release what's in my kingdom, which is abundance, healing, provision, resolution of conflict. I mean, you name it. All the abundance that that exists in his kingdom realm, it gets released into our realm, which is so awesome. So I'm I'm needing this word for me, and, and I hope that it just really lands on you. But take it and apply it the minute you walk out of this church today. Take it in the smallest areas and say, Lord, what am I, what do I need to release to you in the smallest habit? Whether it be, you know, your time management, your food, your finances, your emotions, you know, allowing yourself to be on a crazy emotional roller coaster, what, whatever you need to release. Start with the little things and you'll notice that those will, he'll help you release. The smallest habits can become the biggest strongholds in our lives. So don't just apply it in this big picture way. Apply it in the simplest way. Um, and so I want to... Um